Alright, man, welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This will likely be episode 198. Jason and I are a bit ahead. Jason Lingren is with me and Mr. John Brisson. Uh, we're going to be covering actually quite a bit of information that's pretty critical in these times. So many people feeling poorly, so many people not happy about their diet, the health of uh, the general population. And this episode is going to begin to address those things. Uh, welcome, Jason. And a fine good morning it is. So we are a little bit ahead, actually a good bit ahead. A couple weeks. Yeah, a couple weeks. So uh, do you have anything that needs to go in before we jump in? Well, by the time this is out, the soundtrack for Shoot the Moon will be available on CD Baby. Right. I just announced that on, on social media that we were getting close. A lot of people requested the soundtrack. So, And I just, I just reviewed the audio you sent me. Uh, anything else? Nope. Let's rock and roll. All right. Welcome, Mr. John Brisson, who, uh, just so people know, was also the first speaker at Shoot the Moon NYC. Anyhow, welcome, sir. And thank you for having me on, uh, Crow and uh, Jason on uh, Crow 777. I'm glad to join you guys and discuss uh, health and how the world order is uh, robbing us of our health on a daily basis. Well, you know, this is probably going to be a useful episode to a lot of people, but I might amend slightly what you mentioned. Um, you know, look at people like you who have educated themselves and are doing something to improve their health. A lot of us are kind of getting what we deserve, right? Heading off to the store, grabbing that box pizza. Not that people should have to worry about that, but the fact is they do now, don't they? Um, a lot of the food supply is maybe not even classifiable as food at this point. I don't know. John, can you tell people where they can find your work, contact you, this kind of thing? Yes, you guys can find me at uh, www.fixyourgut.com. I have a blog there with over 200 articles. Also, uh, Fix Your Gut on YouTube and Fix Your Gut on Facebook. Also, Fix Your Gut on Amazon, which is the third edition now of my book. Hopefully, I'll have a book, uh, Fix Your Mitochondria, that'll be out this year to help with mitochondrial help. I also offer a health coaching, too, as well. My website with people with gut issues or a wide variety of, of different issues. All right, perfect. Anyhow, Jason, you want to lead us in here? Well, John, I think your whole approach to all this came about because of things that happened to you personally, correct? Yeah, um, I was sick myself. Uh, I lost both my parents at a young age. I lost my mom to systemic lupus at the age of seven and my father uh, to hepatitis C at the age of 18. And I've had health problems off and on my whole entire life. So yeah, that's where I, I learned how to gain this knowledge because the medical system was not helping me. It failed me like it failed most people. Uh, most people who come to me have been failed by conventional medicine and in doing so, they search out alternatives to try to improve their life and improve their health and relieve chronic illness, which conventional medicine has a horrible track record of dealing with so let's let's actually ask a question do you believe that uh you are what you eat john do you think that's an accurate cliche very much so i mean it, it, we are we feeds our microbiome and and nourishes our body with appropriate you know vitamins and minerals and polyphenols and everything so yeah you know the more that we ingest the quality of our food even the quantity you know studies have shown that fasting um it can help with our circadian rhythm and help with overall health too as well and, you know, there's old added that doctors really can't just, you know, figure out um, what, you know, we should be able to eat because they're always debating, you know, nutrition with nutritionists, but when we should eat and how often that we should eat. And it does appear that the less often that you eat, and if you eat during the daylight hours, it tends to be better for your health because, you know, that's in line with our circadian rhythm. It's in line with the sun. You know, most of us were not eating it, you know, ancient man was not eating at one o'clock in the morning. So it seems to be better off that way if, if, if we if we follow how our, our ancestors, you know, ate and everything. 
Well, we've mentioned this a few times. Um, even in the, I guess I'll call it classic Chinese medicine, there's an old saying that if the doctor has not prescribed you food as part of your prescription, then you haven't seen a doctor at all. And that's a bit ironic living in the West because very rarely when you go see a doctor, do they have much to say about food. I mean, they might tell you don't eat salt. They might tell you you weigh too much. Um, but most of the time, a specific dietary regime is never really addressed. And uh, this sticks out like a sore thumb. I mean, you must have be familiar with Dr. Lena, who we've had on uh, the episode. But where would you like to jump in here, John? And just to be clear, the bulk of what we were covered here, and correct me if I don't get this quite right, um, I had to look up quite a bit, many of the words in your notes, even peptide. I was mistakenly thinking that was a uh, protein. But most of what we're going to cover here is about diet and gut health. Is that correct? Yes, it is, Crow. So I guess what most people think of, like their microbiome, for example, the bacteria that are made up in our gut, it's actually the bacteria that are on is in a, within our entire body. Um, most people don't realize that there's no part of their body that is actual sterile, not even the brain. Um, they used to thought the stomach was sterile, but the stomach, even though it does have a very a low pH in a healthy person, and you know, because of the stomach acid that's being produced. Uh, bacteria do live there, hopefully probiotic bacteria like Peptostreptococcus and Lactobacillus. Um, but that's not sterile. The womb is not sterile. The bladder's not sterile. And like I said you know, earlier, the brain is not even sterile. The brain has its own microbiome too as well. So there are many different organisms, bacteria, parasites, viruses, uh, yeast, um, some that are probiotic, some are that are opportunistic and cause issues, or some are more pathogenic. Um, but if, you know, the microbiome is within a healthy balance of hopefully more probiotic bacteria, probiotic organisms than those opportunistic organisms, then most people can maintain proper health. Well, here in the West, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of stating this without knowing certainly that what I'm about to say is true. So correct me if I don't hit the mark here. Um, the food supply has really changed. And one of the things that's happened in the West is everything gets... Um, sterilized, basically. Yes. It gets boiled until all the life is out of it. It gets homogenized. It gets pasteurized. Um, historically, these were good ways to get these micro, I don't know, I'll just say biotic because you can correct me in a minute, these little things that we need in our system, like cheese would have been a good example before cheese was pasteurized, maybe milk. Um, and here's another thing. So many people go for the yogurt on the shelf these days. My mom wants to do it all the time. It drives me crazy because I've read the ingredients. There yeah. is so much damn sugar in that. It's, it's like ice cream. It's not really yogurt at all, is it? And, you know, I keep trying to get her over to the, to the yogurt without sugar in it. But I mean, is this part of the problem? What's happened with the food supply being pasteurized and homogenized? Very much so, um, Crow. They've taken out fermented foods uh, primarily out of our diet. And I mean, that was one of the main ways that we uh, preserved foods in ancient cultures and we were able to, you know, ingest foods, you know, later in the months was through uh, preservation, canning and everything. And, and we, we, don't, we don't do that anymore. We don't eat uh, fermented foods, cabbage, uh, which is sauerkraut or kimchi, depending on your location in the world, or, or kefir or or sour cream, or, or I mean, kvass. I mean, there's many different types. Kombucha, there's many different types of fermented foods that have existed through different cultures throughout history. And those foods contain a lot of uh, great living organisms for, for many people, a lot of uh, probiotic uh, bacteria and probiotic yeast, depending on uh, the specific uh, fermented food. Uh, uh, sauerkraut, for example, has tons of lactobacillus plantarum. 
which is a, a, a species of lactobacillus that lives in the colon. It's a very probiotic bacteria. It can help um, keep opportunistic uh, bacteria like uh, Klebsiella or Strep at bay. So we've got we've moved away from ingesting food that contained, you know, also certain amount of living nutrients. Um, and kind of moved on to the sterile, lifeless food. And I'm not saying that there isn't some benefit in modern food supplies too, like refrigeration, which gives us, you know, a long, a longer ability um, to be able to purchase and cook and food and eat later. And I'm not saying that there is some benefit to a lot of these modern techniques in preventing like food poisoning, for example. But still, it seems like we kind of got out of balance where, yeah, people in first world countries, you know, unless they're eating tons of fast food, let's say if you're cooking at home, are less likely to get food poisoning than our ancestors. But then again, our ancestors may have had somewhat stronger guts to some degree just because they were eating a lot of this beneficial bacteria, which we lack in the food that we have today. Well, I am all about, and, and I know what you're saying is true. I got interested in fermented foods for the exact reason that you were pointing out. Um, I became aware of it because of the Japanese culture. Um, and then I realized that here in the West, I can get miso paste. Um, the darker the miso paste, the more fermented it is. And that is a great source of things that are now missing from our diet. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, maybe soy sauce is fermented. You got to watch that though. There can be a lot of salt for people who shouldn't be getting a lot of salt. But my point here is, oh, and I'll add, for people who go out and get miso paste, you don't want to boil that, by the way. You bring it to a boil, you kill it. Um, and I don't want to be rude here, John, but I'll point out a thing that my wife and I noticed years and years ago. People in the West, a lot of them, have such bad digestion, they're having trouble going to the bathroom. Yes. Um, and that's absolutely symptomatic of health issues, isn't it? And so I don't want to be rude, but I mean, a healthy person, how many times should a person go to the bathroom in a day? On average, two to three times um, at the bare minimum once a day. Um, usually if you're not going, um, usually if you're going every other day, at start to be constipation. Now the doctors will say, well, chronic constipation isn't once, unless you're not, you know, or only going once or twice a week or less. But I mean, your your elimination system, as far as you know, de, you know, defecation, is important. It, you know, the faster, and I'm not saying you don't want to have diarrhea. Obviously, you want to have well formed stools on the Bristol scale, okay? But it is important for us to have proper elimination because a lot of those toxins that we ingest in our modern lives, you just don't want food sitting around fermenting and producing excess gas and feeding excess microbes in your digestive tract. That's how a lot of people get many digestive issues like SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth syndrome. And also um, studies have shown too as well that appendicitis, um, which the appendix is an, uh, an organ, they say is uh, vestigial, which means it has no use, but it actually does have a lot of use. A lot of your probiotic microbiome lives in your appendix. And when you have food poisoning or diarrhea, your body flushes out, it draws water into the intestinal tract as a defense mechanism to wash out the toxins and to wash out, you know, any of the foodborne illness organisms that you've ingested, kind of like a last ditch effort to get rid of it. And bacteria from the appendix come out as kind of like a, a, like a safe house because it's kind of off from the cecum, which is the first part of the large intestine, and it repopulates your colon. So that you get kind of like a blueprint of your pro of your bacteria that made up your colon back again. So 
studies have shown that if you are constipated, fecal matter keep, keeps pushing up into the appendix where it shouldn't be, and opportunistic bacteria can get inside the appendix and cause appendicitis. And now even um, mainstream medical science is recognizing the importance of the appendix and that you don't have to take out someone's appendix to tackle appendicitis. You can't actually use an antibiotic called Zyfaxin that only works at in the small intestine in that beginning part of the cecum to overcome appendicitis instead of having your appendix taken out, that it is not a vestigial organ any longer. Well, I think so many people, and let's just be clear about this, and correct me, I, I'm thinking back um, to like a drug study, addiction study that I was looking into quite a number of years ago, and it stuck with me, and it's a common sense thing for people to understand. You have to get toxins and waste out of your body. Um, if I remember correctly, John, correct me if I mess this up, um, the primary way that you get waste and toxins out is through defecation. The secondary way yes. is through urination. And the tertiary way would be through like sweat, you know, your armpits or, you know, however you perspire. Um, did I get all that right? And I think it's important for people to understand because we kind of lose track of these things. And that's a pretty basic thing to know. Yes, defecation is the main way that we expel toxins. I definitely agree with you, Crow, on that. Um, the, the studies have shown that. Urination is second. Um, sweating, lacrimation, which is tears, saliva, um, um, ejaculation, um, menstruation. Those are other methods of which toxins may leave the body, uh, too, as well. Um, but yes, that, the main way that. is defecation. It's kind of interesting that one of the big things we do in Western society, especially, is try and prevent one of those important things from occurring, and that's sweating. We're going to pound nasty, heavy metal, thick goo <laughs> on your underplaces to make sure that it doesn't happen when that's probably not for the best, is it? Not, not no. me. For 20 years, I have not done any perspirant or, or deodorant of any kind. Use aluminum to block the pores and then wonder why, you know, we have increased risk, rates of breast cancer, you know. But right. uh, oh, what, one thing I want to mention too, Chris, you mentioned about the miso paste is Asian cultures knew that fermenting the soy plant would uh, reduce its estrogen mimic ability um, that comes with soy, uh, which can cause some issues uh, for, for males who ingest uh, frequently ingest unfermented soy. But somehow they instinctively knew um, because they were able to uh, a lot most uh, you know soy products when it comes you know as far as Asian cultures majority of them were fermented, so that doesn't surprise me that somehow they were able to correlate the two together, and um, and and they were able to realize that some of the phytoestrogens that are in soy now granted they're not as strong as the plastic based xenoestrogens like bisphenol A but they can still have a hormonal effect over time period and concentration, depending on how much of it's in your diet. Well, it's a bit ironic that, you know, as we came through the 50s and 60s, the media portrayed America as the greatest place on earth. We were better than everyone else. We were that shining beacon. And what's happened here is we've probably got one of the worst food supplies in the world. And I don't mean, I mean, we have plenty of food. We have good access to food, but the quality of the food is what I'm referring to. Um, I've been to Korea a couple times. Their national dish is kimchi. That's fermented. Um, another thing most people don't know about Korean food is it's color-coded. A person living in Korea is not only getting daily fermented food, because almost with every meal you get kimchi, um, 
the colors tell you if you've got all the colors that they use, you've had a balanced meal. But um, that's a word that I'm thinking about going at because the importance of fermented food is lost here in the West. And we have very few things that could be considered fermented in the way we're talking about, not like a beer. But the word, think about the word, meant always means mind. Um, so there's going to be something interesting uh, if you dig into the language there, I think. What do you think? Yes, uh, very much so. And, and, and even the European Union has uh, stricter food laws and they're not using many genetically modified ingredients, if any at all. Um, usually even <laughs> packaged foods or processed foods in the European Union, when you can buy them side by side by their American or Canadian counterpoints, they're totally different in ingredients. And even packaged foods are even healthier in the European Union than they are compared to, to, to you know, most of North America. Well, if I'm not mistaken, you can still get living cheese there. I remember there was one place in San Diego. Um, it was a farmer's market. As a matter of fact, we used to bump into Charlotte Gerson there. Charlotte Gerson used to go to this co-op to get her organic things to juice. And in there, they actually legally had cheese on the shelf that had not been pasteurized. And it's quite a thing for the average American to go taste some cheese that's not pasteurized. But if I'm not mistaken, there are places all over Europe that don't have the food's not all pasteurized, is it? No, I mean, for most people, the only, I guess the only uh, caveat to that, I guess we'll talk about it later, is, is someone with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease uh, may have to avoid raw dairies. Um, but most raw, most of your raw dairy, if you're able to get it in the United States and able to consume it, most of the time it's coming from pastured cows and very small farms, uh, which the risk of, of ingesting mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis is, is very low. But for most people, you know, the occasional ingestion, especially of raw cheese, um, which I myself, I can find raw goat cheese here in in, in, in North Carolina. Um, but I guess it depends on the state. I can't get raw milk, for example, that's unless it's only labeled for quote unquote veterinary use. Hmm. Um, but they've made it out. They've outlawed it. You know, they they, they it's OK for you to um, drink all the micro. Uh, particulates of plastic that you want and your plastic containers and your food and, you know, the nano zinc particles in your sunscreen when you're lathering it on your kids, you know, that's perfectly fine. But, you know, God forbid someone, you know, drink some raw milk and all of a sudden it's a major crime. Well, they've got everybody convinced that you got to obliterate food before it's safe for consumption. And it's just not true. It's the opposite of true. It's making us sick in this country. You know, that brings me to another point. Uh, when we did the tee up for this, John, and we met briefly on Skype to just kind of outline what we we're going to cover. And you made me aware of the different kinds of dairy. And I walked away from that conversation feeling like I had no idea. Um, and you just kind of briefly mentioned, you know, somewhere in Europe, there might be a small farm where there's a few cows out in a field. That's a different kind of cow for the most part, than we have here in America, isn't it? Yes, very much so. What they, the difference is between the A1 producing cows and the A2 uh, producing cows. Um, and it's very different than the, you know, like the cows that we have, you know, today, like you mentioned, in the United States, where majority of them are A1 producing cows, meaning that they produce A1 uh, beta casein, um, where the, the only difference between A1 beta casein and A2 beta casein is that A1 beta casein and all the 209 amino acids that make up beta casein, proline is substituted at position 67 um, compared to, uh, well, actually, no, it's histidine. Uh, for uh, A1 at, at 67 and proline for A2. Um, so when a person ingests A1 beta casein, uh, beta casomorphin 7 is, a, is able to be digested and cut off, cleaved off, 
and it's able to cross the blood-brain barrier as an opioid peptide, um, and uh, and uh, you know it makes it addicting. It makes it you know like you know most opioid peptides, your 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 brain has opioid receptors uh, to reduce pain and, and to increase dopamine levels, decrease pain, should I say, and increase dopamine levels. Um, it, you know, so endorphins, for example, your body produces its own endorphins to help uh, pain management and regulation. Um, so the you know there's a lot of opioid peptides within food and, and casomorphin being one. So if you're ingesting you know A2 milk, it's going to be less addicting and less inflammatory supposedly uh, compared to if you're ingesting A1 milk, uh, which is primarily within the United States. A2 is a lot of Australian milk is A2. That's where most of your A2 milk is being produced. Sadly, most of the A2 milk that you buy in stores is ultra filtrated. Um, it's not um, homogenized, but it is ultra pasteurized for increased uh, shelf length um, and everything because they have to transport it from Australia. Um, but still, even that, the A2 milk that you're ingesting, even if it is ultra pasteurized, is going to be better than most of the A1 milk that you're going to ingest, except for possibly grass-fed raw A1 milk actually might be okay for some people. But it just depends. You know, there's some people who ingest the standard A1 milk uh, that we get here in the States, and, you know, they can't tolerate it. It makes them ill. It changes their mood. It makes them more anxious. They have digestive issues. But if they ingest the A2 milk, they have no problems. Well, let's yeah. let's let's put this in layman's terms. I guess I'm fortunate. I never liked milk. I never liked cow's milk. I've never drank. I mean, the most cow's milk I ever get is maybe a spoonful and a cup of coffee, and a lot of times not even that. But what you're saying here is primarily in this country, we're getting what you're calling A1 cow milk. Other yes. places where it might be more healthy would be A2 cow milk. How in the heck did the cows become A1? Can you put in layman's terms so people understand what we're talking about? How did this difference occur? Weren't all the cows the same at one point? There was a mutation, I guess, within the cows due to animal husbandry uh, leading uh, to, to breeding. Um, so, you know, they kind of bred different, different cattle for different purposes. So here in America, you know, we tend to have corporate feedlots and, and, and corporate farming. Um, so they wanted uh, the, the A1 cows, um, I think I think Jersey cow is the, is the main one. So they, they, you know, they produce a good quality amount, a good quantity of milk. Um, so they kind of, you know, bred the cows specifically for that purpose. And in doing so, they bred mainly A1 producing cows. Did that compound it? Did, did, did the damage compound? I mean, we know now, when you go to the store, you'll see all these labels, non-GMO, no antibiotics use. But we know certainly that in a lot of these big farming dairy operations, all those animals were getting put on antibiotics for decades. And that means the next generation came from parents that had been on antibiotics. Did that compound the issues we're talking about? Hormones was the big thing, too, that a lot of people picked up on. Yeah, I mean, I actually had to go back and look. I'm sorry. It was the Jersey cow that is primarily the A2 variety. The Holstein that's used in America is primarily A1 with some A2. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's them breeding the cows, you know, for, for better meat, for them to be bigger, for, for them to produce more milk. And in doing so, it kind of changed the, the protein and the casein that was produced by the cows. And so, I mean, when you look at milk here now in the States – it's it, it's pasteurized. Now you can have vat pasteurization, which is the safest. It's kind of like low temperature, um, short, uh, long term pasteurization. 
Uh, it seems to denature the milk the least, uh, the proteins within the milk. And then you have standard pasteurization. Then you have what is called as flash pasteurization or ultra pasteurization, which is very quick, very high temperature. It's it's not good for the milk. And then you have, of course, a homogeneization where you're kind of forcing the, the fat globules through a filter to separate them. So the milk is more, quote unquote, palatable. Um, so you have, you know, homo, you know, homogenization for a, a lot of milk. And then of course you have the hormones, um, the bovine growth hormone, um, being injected into cows and, and some studies have shown that they met, might be expressed into the milk. Antibiotics are expressed into the milk too, as well. They're given to cattle. Um, so you're getting a good dose of hormones and consuming milk of the worst quality. You're getting a good dose of hormones. Um, I would say maybe some sort of infection, maybe pus to some degree, um, even though a lot of that's going to be um, pasteurized out. It's just a soup of something that's the, the farthest away that you can get from the actual animal in and of itself or whatever milk's supposed to be. Not as some people argue we're not supposed to consume milk. Vegans would argue um, we're not supposed to consume another animal's milk. And yeah. Um, but I mean, there is some positives and negatives to almost anything that we ingest as human beings. We are technically omnivores. Um, our, our digestive tract uh, is, is we rely most of our microbiome to break down a majority of the plant matter that we ingest. So, I mean, milk, it's not how it used to be back in ye olden days, you know, when you, you milk a cow, like you'd have a family farm and they milk a cow and maybe they'd give some of that milk to their neighbors. Maybe they'd sell it, you know, to their community, but they'd keep most of it themselves. You know, now it's huge lots with cows who are, you know, sick all the time and giving antibiotics and, you know, bleeding and pus gets into the milk and stuff like that. And just the worst imaginable. And it just comes out as a sterile, lifeless, you know, liquid in a carton for mass consumption and nature free you know it's funny how we can come to a time when a word like denatured doesn't mean anything to us it's removed the nature from it you know i think part of that vegan argument i would actually accept how is it that we will accept that a baby human being can have cow milk but as a society the idea of drinking human milk is repulsive makes no sense you go out to nature, a beaver's drinking beaver milk, a monkey's drinking monkey milk, and if we were back far enough, a human being would be drinking human being milk, but I am a little one-sided because I've never really consumed animal milk other than maybe cheeses and stuff, but um, it's a hell of a thing that we're denatured. As a matter of fact, here's, here's a recent story that, that I'll tell it just to try to get people to read the damn labels on all that crap you're picking up at your store. Uh, my wife went out to get some rubbing alcohol that we needed to do a thing here. I opened it up and I immediately got an overwhelming smell of, what is it, is it acetone? What a lot of women use to take nail polish off? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah, so the acetone. So I'm looking at this bottle. It says denatured isopropyl alcohol. And that's all it says on the label. On this tiny, tiny label on the back, I'm looking through and there it is. 15% acetone. I'm all, holy smokes. People put that stuff on their bodies. Alcohol, what they consider rubbing alcohol. And what's more is up at the top, the active ingredient, apparently acetone is not an active ingredient. And so then I started thinking, well, 
maybe I just don't know what I'm doing here. Do people really go to the store and like rub a scratch with isopropyl alcohol or is it something else? But my point is here we are buying this thing and we were going to clean the glass had got stuff on it that we knew um, the alcohol would get right off cleanly. But uh, I ended up taking that right back. Can you imagine uh, you go to buy alcohol and there's acetone in it? It's beyond me. The things that get put into our products these days. That's paint thinner, by the way. Is that what it is? And you can smell it. I recognized the smell instantly and said, wait a minute, that's not what I, I meant rubbing alcohol. So we ended up going back up and we're trying. The funny thing is, is like if you're 60 or 70 and you're nearsighted, you're never going to know because the labels are so tiny. And so then we're going through and I, I forget what I figured out, but I figured out how to just get regular, the spirit that comes from a plant called alcohol uh, with not a bunch of crap in it. But yeah, I was blown away because my first thought was, I know certainly people go to the store, they buy this to rub their scratches, which they probably shouldn't. And there's acetone in it. Yeah. I mean, denatured alcohol, if I remember correctly, it's way more higher toxicity than isopropyl alcohol is. 70% isopropyl alcohol. I mean, just if there's no added, added anything to it is, I mean, I'm not going to say it's not necessarily a good idea to pour that stuff on your cuts. I mean, hydrogen peroxide actually may be worse to some degree um, because of its oxidating effect to the tissue. There's actually studies that show that, ox uh, that, that hydrogen peroxide in some cases can increase scarring uh, formation. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, when you're going, you're, you're going to put isopropyl alcohol in a wound and you put denatured alcohol instead, it's not, it's not a good thing. Well, it, well yeah, it was isopropyl alcohol. I think it was, I got, I got to go, well, we don't have the bottle. I think it was 15% acid. I mean, it, it was, when you opened it, it was the overwhelm. I mean, I knew instantly something's wrong here. Um, I just smelled it and it was labeled isopropyl. And when we went back, we found the correct label for just, you know, basically so people know ethyl or methyl alcohol in the alchemical world is the spirit of almost every growing plant in the world across the board to the point where in some of the alchemical procedures, it is stated, and I don't know if I agree with this or not, I think there is a difference between distilling the ethyl alcohol from a plant and going to the drugstore and picking up pure ethyl or methyl alcohol. But there are plenty of alchemists who claim you could just swap that right in. It's the same thing. To me, it comes back to Dr. Omoto's work, you know, the intent idea embedded in the things we use. It's a bit like the tofu story you're telling. Somehow the Japanese knew that if you ate these tofu products without fermenting them, that it would, I guess what you were getting at is feminize men more readily, right? Um, yes. A lot, a lot of people complaining about that in the West. Uh, the, the, the manly man being slowly missing from our society. Um, and this goes to show, man, you are what you eat all that time ago before the microscope. Somehow the Japanese were close enough to nature to understand if you eat this, it has a feminizing quality, but if you ferment it, not so much, um, talk about or, being close to nature. Or even the Western world about scurvy and its connection to citrus fruits and vitamin C and everything and, and how, you know, it was lost and then, re, you know, renowned again. Um, but, I mean, it's, it, it seems that, you know, human beings are, are able to, to, to discern most of the time uh, whether something is, is helpful or harmful, even though I guess the Romans didn't understand that lead was poison. <laughs> Oh, yeah, come on, come on. Yeah, the, every time I hear that story, it's like, really? Um, the Romans were retarded, apparently. They, they were mentally deficient. <laughs>
conquered most of the known world, couldn't figure out lead. Yeah, couldn't figure out plum bum. Yeah. You know, stepping back on your notes here, John, South Park did an episode in this latest season making fun of the whole microbiome thing. Do you want to go over that a little bit more, what the microbiome is? And did something happen in recent news items or anything that they would even pick up on that? What were they making fun about? I, I, I haven't watched South Park in I don't know how many years, Jason. Um, can you briefly discuss what they were discussing on the episode, if, if, if you know? Yeah, I usually watch them in bulk. I, I forget that they're out there, and then I'll go watch them because as stupid as they are, I still find them funny. But it was one of the characters' mothers was sick and had to get a fecal implant to reset her microbiome, and they were even using those terms. And then everybody became obsessed with a certain star athlete's microbiome. Everybody wanted to get some of his poop and put it inside of themselves because he was obviously strong and healthy. And that was the whole joke through the whole thing that everyone was chasing down this guy trying to get his poop. Correct me if I'm wrong. One of the biggest ways that happens regularly in our country, besides the fact that we're not getting foods that would give us these good things in our guts, one of the big things is antibiotics, isn't it, John? When you take antibiotics, a lot of those broad spectrum, I mean, they're basically whacking everything that's in your gut. Yeah, I mean, antibiotic, anti-life, you know, against life. So, yeah, I mean, they're broad spectrum. You know, some, uh, uh, you know, deal more with gram-positive, some deal more with gram-negative bacteria. Um, Some are more stronger. There is what they call more broad spectrum, like tetracycline, which attacks, you know, a a wide range of both opportunistic and, and probiotic bacteria. Let Um, me jump in here before you keep going. So let's just, this is why words have meaning and why it's important that you understand words. Bio or biology, the definition, the science of life or living matter and all its forms and phenomena, especially with reference to origin, growth, reproduction, structure, and behavior. behavior. That's bio. So what is anti-bio? It's exactly what John just said. It basically means against life, doesn't it? Yes, and I yes, and I'm not going to say that antibiotics don't have their purpose when properly used. I mean, even some of the herbs that we use contain natural antibiotics, like cavaroserol and 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 clove, for example, or thymol and and thyme. Um, you know, so the, I, but the thing is, is is everything you know, it is everything should be used in its proper time and proper place. So the, my main issue with antibiotics is some of them are more toxic than others, like ciprofloxin, for example, which seems to uh, poison our mitochondria, which are like the powerhouses of our cell, will produce energy. So you know, many people who take ciprofloxin, they end up getting what is called floxed, which causes very long-term mitochondrial issues, um, and I've written, written about it on Fix Your Gut. Phoenix Aurelius deals with this a lot, people who have been floxed. Yeah, everything you got to do by less harm. So my issue with antibiotics is not necessarily that they're used, is that they're used incorrectly, and some are probably way better than others, or some should only be used in a matter of life and death. And too often, right? Yeah, and too often, which that's my main issue with conventional medicine is, yeah, conventional medicine works very well for trauma-based medicine. For example, if I get in a severe car accident, um, now I do believe that there, you know uh, natural medicine, or, or what they call, I guess, integrative medicine, when you combine the two, will help a person recover faster from said car accident or injury. But, you know, there are, you know, there is a needed for conventional medicine. The only problem is, is conventional medicine doesn't 
just deal with you know diagnostic medicine or, or emergency care it deals with everything else like it has a poor track record for chronic disease a poor track record for quote unquote autoimmune conditions a poor track record for cancer um you know and so that's the main glaring problems with conventional medicine um so antibiotics do serve a purpose but the problem is is they're used way too often a lot of them you know most doctors are giving ciprofloxacin out like candy you know, and not telling people, well, yeah, well, maybe you should supplement with magnesium and, and CoQ10 or ubiquinol and PQQ to protect your mitochondria while you're taking this uh, antibiotic or, or test them for a genetic polymorphism for SOD2, superoxidized dimutase, uh, superoxide dimutase 2, which the SOD, superoxidized dimutase is what your mitochondria use, uh, produce to, to reduce uh, reactive oxygen species or oxidative stress, and, and ciprofloxacin increases that. Is there any known, so, so for someone who's taken ciprofloxacin has become what they call floxed, is there any known, I mean, once it's happened after the fact, is there any going back? Yeah, for some people I've seen that there have been, uh, some people are able to, to gain a majority of their health back. Uh, uh, I've talked about it in my blog, that there are things that you can do to try to, uh, you know, re reduce the amount of ciprofloxacin that's left in your body and, and kind of repair the mitochondrial damage, circadian rhythm, proper diet, proper supplementation of things to improve mitochondrial function like magnesium, omega-3 fatty acids, either an algae oil if you're vegan or, or seafood if, if you if you eat, uh, if you're more, if you're at least a pescatarian, proper water ingestion that's clean to help the mitochondria. There's things that you can do and there have been people have, who have recovered from being floxed, but sadly not everyone though. So, so let me ask you something. Right now, my wife and I have been uh, doing basically the Gerson method of juicing. Um, people have heard us talk about it. Basically, the main difference is we're getting juice that's still alive. It's being yes. cold, cold pressed. So are we putting, from your estimation, are we putting all these good living things back into our gut by juice? I mean, I know certainly beyond doubt, I am getting living life into my body. The life that was in that carrot, the life that was in that apple or whatever it is that we're juicing, we usually do too, um, an orange and a green juice. The green juice is made up of many things, um, but the life that was in that living thing, it, I'm ingesting it because I'm juicing it live. I'm getting it right away. Am I also getting, I, I don't know if I should call it probiotic, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Possibly. Uh, I mean, I mean, if you're, it depends on where you're getting your food from. If you're getting it from a garden outside and you're not really you know, washing it off too much, then yeah, you would be uh, getting a, a good amount of probiotics. Now, granted, some people could say that could lead to foodborne illness, and it could, you know, I mean, it is possible. Now, I mean, if you're ingesting, it depends. Like if you're ingesting conventional produce, which I don't think you are, that you get from Walmart, for example, no, that's not organic. a good idea. <laughs> it's all organic. But, you know, if it's organic and, you know, then there are, there are, you know, some organic pesticides that can cause issues for some people like copper. But if you're, you know, you're, you're getting more of that healthy food, um, I wouldn't necessarily say it'd have a lot of probiotics, but would have a lot of good prebiotic goodness, which prebiotics are what feed um, the bacteria or organisms that live in, in, in our digestive tract that have to ferment our food and help us process it and break it down for assimilation. So, you know, when you're eating carrot, for example, some people like Ray Pete, Dr. Ray Pete, I've said that ingesting of raw carrot, um, especially, you know, if you're using a cold press instead of using a centrifuge juicer, you're getting, you know, um, especially if you're adding some of that fiber back into it too as well with the juice, you're getting 
um, uh, carrot is able to reduce endotoxin load in the digestive tract, which are what gram-negative bacteria, uh, they produce these endotoxins, and some gram-negative bacteria are worse than others. For example, you probably have heard of H. pylori or or uh, Yersinia pestis, which was the cause of the Black Plague, th those are all uh, proteobacteria. Uh, and proteobacteria produce very potent endotoxins, where like a bacteroid, which is a more probiotic bacteria, they produce less potent endotoxins and make up about 20 to 30% of a healthy gut. So, you know, you're getting this carrot is reducing the endotoxin load. It's reducing estrogen's effect on the gut, which can be very good for males uh, in the excess estrogen, estrogenic world that we live in. So that carrot that you're ingesting in that raw form using a cold pressed juicer or a masticating juicer, it's it's you're getting the benefit of all the polyphenols too that are in carrots as well, or let's say blueberries. You know, you're, with blueberries, you're getting uh, pterostilla bean. Uh, in it or grape, you're getting rosaveratrol. So with each fruit or vegetable that you ingest, you're getting these polyphenols, and a lot of them have very great health benefits. However, there are some people with gut issues develop sensitivities to a lot of these polyphenols. Uh, um, you know, you'll get sal salicylate sensitivity, for example, um, and you're you're not able to ingest like a pomegranate, which would be very very healthy uh, for the gut um, and the average person. But for those people, since you know, they'll ingest foods that are high in salicylates, it'll cause them to have very strong, violent mood changes and, 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 um, and, and uh, or ringing of the ears um, and that normally they would not get if you have a healthy gut. It's weird. You know, when our gut is unhealthy, majority of the food that we eat can almost turn against us and can almost make us extremely ill. And people go on more limiting and limiting diets and in doing so, the microbiome further dies off, which causes kind of like the cyclical effect. You know, usually the more items that you take out of your diet, the, the you know, the, the more harder it is to put those items back in. <laughs> Let's actually try to lay some things down. Um, we're, we're coming around the corner here. We're headed towards the top of the hour. And by the way, John, um, I'm going to ask you to state at the end of this episode where everyone can find you and your work. If we were going to make two lists, just overarching good things for people to know, things you pry don't want to use or ingest, and things that would be very helpful to use right off the bat, here's part of what I noticed that has happened over the last 20 years maybe even 30. It used to be very uncommon for Americans to eat every meal out. Very uncommon. That was a, You went out to dinner, it was a special thing 30, 40 years ago. That's changed now. Now you got your Grubhub. Now you got people that it's rare when they cook in. We have whole cultural norms where people basically never cook. If For the people that still do cook and see the value in it, it is very easy to make miso soup, and it is very good for you. But, John, let's start with the list of things maybe not so helpful for people to do. The first thing I'll add to the list is underarm deodorant and fluoride toothpaste. What would you add to the not-so-helpful list? Not seeing the sun or going outside to get sunlight exposure regularly, which many people do in a, in ur, you know, an urbanized world that we live in, first world world that we live in. We don't get sun. Being overexposed to blue light, whether it's LED lighting at the office or LED lighting at home or staring at your cell phone right before you go to bed, that blue light 
reduces melatonin production. The body thinks that it's daytime uh, when you're staring into your phone at night. So you want to make sure you put a blue light filter on your phone to reduce the amount of blue light that you're getting exposed to. That's Being a big over- deal, by the way, because uh, we put filters on it. It helps immediately. Uh, a program called Flux for PC yes. users. So go ahead, John. Or Twilight for your phones, um, if, if you have Android. Um, yeah, it's very, you're, you're right, Crow. It's very, very important. You want to definitely block as much blue light as possible yes. as you can at night. For I mean, that's why um, nurses um, have higher rates of cancer um, is because, one, their circadian rhythm. I mean, if they work night shift. If their circadian rhythm is off, and two, they're being exposed to chronic blue light at night, which reduces the amount of melatonin, which melatonin is a very strong antioxidant. Um, so a reducing a non-native EMF exposure the best you can. In the modern world that we live in, it's almost impossible uh, to, to avoid EMF um, unless you live in the radio-free dead zone and don't have a f- phone you know, near Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, but I mean, you know, just like turning off your, your router at night or turning it off when you're not using it or use a 2.4 gigahertz instead of 5 or, or you know, putting a, a, a cover on your phone like a safe sleeve so that when it's in your pocket, it's not irradiating you um, as much and, you know, turning off data when you're not using it or GPS when you're not using it or Bluetooth when you're not using it, all of those things. There's been multiple studies of how EMF affects our gut health or affects our reproductive health, among other things. Oh, EMF, uh, chronic exposure. So reducing that's important. Clean water ingestion. A lot of our water is very toxic with fluoride and chloramine being added to it, among other things. Pharmaceuticals that that you know are just not filtered out out of, out of good city water, even well, well water can become contaminated. Yeah, let me ask you then. A lot of people, how do you feel about ingesting distilled water? That's the argument that goes on: is what's the healthiest water? You know, you have distilled, which has completely everything taken out of it. Reverse osmosis, which almost has everything taken out of it. Then you have spring water, which is what we, you know, God gave us and what we we drank. Ancient man drank from, you know, the, the springs, you know. And so I would say that. Reverse osmosis water and distilled water are way better for you than any standard water that you're going to get out of a bottle, unless it's a glass bottle, or out of your faucet, okay? So it's kind of like levels of, of, of doing your best to optimal. So optimal, obviously, is you know, a local spring that you've tested that's free of contaminants that you go and get your water from and you fill up glass jugs. I mean, that's the most optimal, okay? And then from there, you know, you have distilled and reverse osmosis or bottled spring water that's in glass bottles. Um, That's, you know, better than, you know, regular tap water or better than ozonated water, which ozonated water can end up, if the water has a good amount of bromine, form a whole bunch of bromide compounds, which aren't good for you. Um, and then below that, you know, I mean, there's would be like standard plastic bottle water. And even then there's different, there's a difference between Deer Park, which seems to have less micro particulates compared to Fiji, which has some of the most, you know, so there's different level. I have a good uh, blog article wait, on wait water a on Fixture Wait gut. a minute. Fiji's build is like the most healthful bottled water there is. Are you saying the most plastic resides in Fiji? From the studies that I've seen, it's got a high amount of plastic in it, yes. Of course. You can't just have the healthiest water on Earth. Untouched by man, but somehow the plastic got there. <laughs> Anyhow, before, before we get to the top of the hour, do you have two or three commonly used products? Let me ask you a couple. Off-the-shelf yeah. shampoo. 
You go to CVS, you grab some shampoo. No, it's not good, especially if it's got uh, perthrone zinc or, or selenium sulfide for anti-jandruff purposes. Definitely. I mean, you're going to have a lot of really nasty preservatives in there, too, as well. Just it's not that's not good. I was going to say um, just your off the shelf standard multivitamin like Centrum, uh, which I would say that Centrum actually it robs your body uh, of, of, it, of any <laughs> nutrient value that you're because I mean, it's got folic acid instead of folate and, and synthetic vitamin E which is known to cause prostate cancer, which is DL, isomer of vitamin E. You know, so it's actually worse for you to take the Centrum than to not take anything at all. (laughs) It's like negative for your health. The reason I asked that is I saw this study uh, where they had tested people to see what kind of terrible things are in human bodies. And they found that 17-year-old young women had the highest toxicity with things like paraben and other things. and. And it's pretty simple. Um, young women want to be beautiful and made up and smell good in our current Western society. Um, and they were pointing to, I think, shampoos maybe was the source of the parabens. Um, lotions. The kinds, yeah, lotions, the kinds of makeup. But how about, let's go to the other side, helpful things. What what would be some, I'll add to the top of my list, miso. Um, and again, don't boil your miso. If you're making soup, learn how to do it. Put miso in after the fact. We've got about four minutes to the top of the hour where we got to put the break here, John. So what would be some helpful things people could consume? Try to eat organic fruits and vegetables, grass-fed meat, uh, clean water, like I'd mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, fruits, you know, blueberries are, are very good. Uh, pomegranate is, is very good for the gut and feeding the gut too as well. Every now and then uh, a good or- organic kombucha, like uh, Dr. Towson's uh, brew kombucha, if you're not sensitive to yeast or, or organic kefir that's low sugar or, or yogurt that's grass-fed and, and, and low um, uh, uh, sugar could be very beneficial for the gut too as well. Grass-fed meat, um, low mercury uh, wild-caught seafood that's preferably in the Atlantic, North Atlantic, which is least contamination, definitely not in the Pacific with Fukushima. But I mean, I, I, that would be my recommendations. I mean, as far as, I mean, magnesium supplementation, magnesium, 80 to 90% of Americans are deficient in magnesium. So, you know, proper magnesium supplementation, I have a good blog on it on Fix Your Gut. Um, it, it would definitely be recommended. It'll help, you know, with many people dealing with anxiety and poor sleep and, and pain. Uh, magnesium helps a, a lot with that and also maintaining motility. Um, so that'd probably be my recommendations, Crow. All right. So we're coming up to the top of the hour. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to recite where people can contact you and find your work. But, you know, we had converted this whole house to LEDs. And I, when I first put them in, I thought, wow, look at that, man. It's like daytime in here. It's so bright. Those things really work and they're not using any energy. Then I started to find out about blue light. Needless to say, there are no LEDs in this house. And I put programs like Flux on my PC. Um, I don't use a cell phone or device like that, but I noticed instantly because what I generally do is I work 10 hours a day from roughly nine to nine or nine 30 at night. So I'm looking at this monitor. As soon as I put Flux on the very first night I did it, it starts to dim out and the blue light is removed and it starts to like go down like the sun. I slept better the very first night. These things are not pipe dreams. I've got firsthand experience and I'm telling you, Think of all the children out there and their damn blue light devices. Uh, Everyone should think about these things and look into it. Jason, what do you want to add before we wrap up? Grass-fed butter is one I was going to throw in with the helpful things. That's something I cook with and use on a regular basis. Um, I use, yeah, I use almost exclusively olive oil, but I think my wife would prefer uh, to use grass-fed butter more often. 
I use coconut oil a lot too. I don't know how John feels about that, but it seems oh, yeah. to be a healthier option. And also think about coconut oil. It has a very high smoke point. Yes. Olive oil has a very low smoke point. You, you don't, if you get olive oil to the smoke point, you're starting to ruin the benefits and the flavors. Um, if you want to cook things at a high temperature, coconut oil is great. Peanut oil is great. There's Avocado a few. You oil. Can, Avocado oil, you can look these up. And this is critical to know because once you've gone past smoke point, you're basically just eating fat at that point that's been burned. John, can you tell people where they can find your work, how they can contact you, this kind of thing? And Jason, can you please cut what he's about to say out and add it into the beginning? Yes, um, Crow, um, uh, you guys can find me at uh, www.fixyourgut.com. I have a blog there with over 200 articles. Um, also, uh, Fix Your Gut on YouTube and Fix Your Gut on Facebook. Um, also, Fix Your Gut on Amazon, which is the uh, my uh, third edition now of my book. Hopefully, I'll have a book, uh, Fix Your Mitochondria, that'll be out this year to help with mitochondrial help. I also offer a health coaching, too, as well on my website with people with gut issues or a wide variety of, of different issues. Um, but yes, definitely, um, it's excellent discussion, and I want to thank you guys for having me on. So let me let me ask before I wrap up here. Yes. Um, we had Dr. Lena on. There was an onslaught of people who just wanted to talk to him. The problem is Dr. Lena has zero time. He can't take on one single more person. That's how plowed he is. Are you open to getting correspondence from people or do you have limits? Very much so. Very much open. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say that I don't have a regular clientele. I do. But yes, I understand what it is to be ill. I've, I've been ill my whole life and everything. And I'll, I'll do my best to help whomever comes to me. All right. Perfect. There it is. So many people feeling unwell these days because the modern artificial denatured world we live in is starting to take a toll. But there it is, man. There's the first hour of episode 198. We hope you'll join us all over at crow777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. We exercise free speech there. So much I would like to have said about vaccination in the first hour, but if we do it, it just gets removed or struck or unavailable. We will talk a little bit about vaccination in the second hour. Hope to see you over at crow777radio.com. There it is, man. Cheers.